Today begins Holy Week, the week that starts with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and ends with Jesus' resurrection from Palm Sunday today to Easter Sunday, a week from today. And this week, I believe, is the highlight of the Christian year. And, you know, even the four gospel writers thought that this week was incredibly important because when you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, and count the number of chapters in those four Gospels, you get 89 chapters. And you know how many of those 89 chapters deal with either the last week of Jesus' life or his post-resurrection experiences? 30 of them. One-third of the Gospels deal with this week, with the last week of Jesus' life. That's how important the Gospel writers saw this week. And just a little bit of background here before we get to the text. As I said, we have four Gospels in our New Testament, all of them written by different men, but writing the same story. They're writing the story of Jesus, but each one of them is writing it from his own perspective, from his own life experience, from who he is. We've got Matthew, one of the 12 disciples. Matthew was a tax collector, an accountant. He was a numbers guy. Everything that Matthew did, it had to be consistent. It had to be logical. It had to be in order, just like numbers. And then we've got Mark, quite a bit younger. Mark was not around during those three years of Jesus' ministry. He first shows up, actually, in Holy Week. But later, Mark was a disciple of Peter. And so when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're reading Peter's words, because Mark learned it from Peter. And Mark's Gospel is a Gospel of action. It moves quickly. Everything is movement. And then you've got Luke. Luke is a doctor. And Luke was a research guy. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, what you're reading is the results of Luke's massive amount of research. And then you get to the Gospel of John, and John's Gospel is very different. Because John, even though he was one of the disciples, John was a cousin of Jesus, probably Jesus' first cousin. And so when you read the Gospel of John, it's kind of like reading a family story with a lot more emotion in it than the other Gospels. So you've got these four Gospels written by four very different men, but writing the same story. And what we're going to do today is look at the story from the perspective of all four of these men as we look at the story of Jesus' triumphal entry. Because you need to take the four stories and put them together to get a complete story of what happened today, many years ago. In fact, one very well-known Bible scholar says that Palm Sunday happened the last week of March in 33 AD. So almost exactly 1990 years ago today is what is happening. And today is going to be a little different from our normal teaching pattern, because normally we take a a passage of Scripture and we work through it verse by verse and start from start to finish, touch every verse in the passage. But today, as I've said, we're going to take the four Gospels and put them together and look at, at the story of Palm Sunday as it is written by the four different authors and meld them into one story. A little bit of background first. Just a few days before Palm Sunday... Jesus and his 12 disciples came to Bethany because of the death of Lazarus. They had been out in the countryside, and basically they'd been in hiding. They'd been laying it really low, 
because the religious leaders were looking for Jesus. They wanted to arrest him. So Jesus took the 12 and went out into the countryside, and they were kind of incognito. And then they heard that Lazarus had died, so they came to Bethany, which is just a few kilometers outside of Jerusalem. And when the disciples found out that they were going to Bethany, they were terrified. And they objected, saying, but Jesus, only a few days ago, the people in Jerusalem tried to stone you. Why are we going there? And Thomas, the one that we often call the doubter, proved to be the most courageous of the lot on that day because here's what he said. Let's go to and die with Jesus. Let's go and die with Jesus. The 12 are incredibly frightened. They think that they are going to Jerusalem and that they and Jesus are going to die when they get there. That's what's in their hearts as they're on their way to Jerusalem. They fear that their deaths are imminent. And yet, when Jesus says, let's go, what do they do? They act out in obedience and they go with Jesus to Jerusalem. And the day before the triumphal entry, Jesus and his disciples are in Jericho. And as they're walking through Jericho, you remember the story of the two blind men, one of them named Bartimaeus? That happened the day before. And Jesus is going through and he heals these two blind men. Now, from Jericho, they're walking up towards Jerusalem, heading towards Bethany. And Jesus knows that he is going to Jerusalem to die. He knows that his death is imminent. He, in fact, he just told his disciples a couple days before this for the third time, we're going to Jerusalem, I am going to be handed over, and I am going to die. He knows that death by crucifixion is awaiting him in Jerusalem. Now, just one more thing, and then we're going to get to the text. And this, this will help us to understand what's going on in Jerusalem at this time. Here's some numbers. Um, there, there was a fellow who lived at this time. His name was Josephus, a historian who did a massive amount of writing of what was happening in the Roman Empire at this time. And he's going to help us to understand the magnitude of what is going on at Jerusalem. Just a few years after Jesus' death, there was a Caesar by the name of Nero. Many of us have heard of him as we've studied history. And Nero called Jerusalem a city of no significance. And so there was some research done by one of Nero's officials to find out whether or not that statement was really true. And he thought that one of the ways he would determine the truth and the validity of that statement was to look at Jerusalem at the time of Passover. So he tasked the priests to count the number of lambs that were used that year at Passover. And Josephus records this in, in one of his books. And, and I want you to hold on to your seats here. Because according to Josephus, the number of lambs that was used that year at Passover was 256,500 lambs. That's an awful lot of lambs to be used one day for Passover in Jerusalem. Now, the normal population of Jerusalem around this time was between 50,000 and 100,000 people. But Josephus, in his writings, said that that year at Passover in Jerusalem, and again, hold on to your seats, there was around 2.7 million people in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. That's an awful lot of people to be packed into a city that's normally 50 to 100,000 people. So Jerusalem was not an insignificant city, the conclusion of that study. So today, 
Five days before Passover, just think, there's already between one and two million people in Jerusalem because most people came to Passover a week early. They wanted to come, hang out with friends, visit with family, and prepare themselves spiritually for Passover. So we've got between one and two million people in Jerusalem already on this day. Okay, those of you that have the text on a piece of paper, I'm going to ask you to hand that out. Because like I said, the text we're going to look at this morning is a compilation of the four Gospels. So you don't have it written out exactly this way in your Bible. So I'm going to hand out the text so that you have that in front of you when we read it. So I'll just give them a minute to get that handed out. And the story we're going to look at today is just an amazing story. It is filled with so much action. There's so much going on in so many different places. And you'll see as you look at the text that um, we're going to be jumping back and forth today between the countryside and what's actually happening in the city of Jerusalem. Almost everyone has it, so just follow along as I read the story. I'm going to read the whole story now. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it, that no one has ever ridden. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them and will return them soon, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples left and found the donkey and the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying them, some bystanders demanded, What are you doing untying them? They said what Jesus had told them to say, The Lord needs them, and they were permitted to take them. Then they brought the donkey and the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over the colt, and Jesus sat on it. Many in the crowd in Jerusalem had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead. And they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. They took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. As Jesus rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and all the people around him were shouting, Hosanna! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Hosanna in the highest! Peace in heaven! And glory in highest heaven. Hail to the King of Israel. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, 
Rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And Jesus replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus came to Jerusalem, went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Then the Pharisees said to each other, There's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone over to him. What an amazing day. Now, just the night before, Jesus had been in Bethany. He'd probably spent the night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And now as he makes his way to Jerusalem, these are all the different things that happen. In the first scene, the people in Jerusalem somehow become aware that Jesus is out in the crowd and that he's making his way towards Jerusalem. And there's a buzz in the city. Just imagine, there's already well over a million people in the city of Jerusalem. And many of them are talking about Jesus, who's out there in the countryside. And those who didn't know Jesus were wondering, what this all about? Who is this guy? What's all the fuss they're asking? And the ones who did know Jesus are answering their questions. And they're telling them about Jesus telling them that this Jesus is the Messiah. And this caused even more of a stir. Every Jew knew about the expected Messiah. They knew their scriptures. They knew the prophecies in the Old Testament that foretold the coming of a Messiah. The Jews want to be free from the rule of Rome, from the bondage of Rome. And they expected a Messiah who would come and set them free from bondage, from slavery, and set up his own kingdom, would rid them of the rule of Rome. And as they wondered if this Jesus who's out there is really the Messiah, their enthusiasm knew no bounds. They had prayed that the Messiah would come and set them free. Perhaps that's him out in the crowd, out there in the countryside. And then in scene two, we move outside of Jerusalem to the highway, just a couple of kilometers out of the city. And you've got this huge crowd of people moving towards Jerusalem. And there's a huge excitement in the crowd. Just think of them. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to celebrate Passover. And Jesus and his disciples are out there in the middle of the crowd. And it's likely that Bartimaeus and the other fellow that Jesus healed the blindness are there in the crowd walking with Jesus because we're told that after he healed them, they followed him to Jerusalem. And it's also very likely that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are walking with Jesus as they're making their way towards Jerusalem. But then Jesus did something very, very strange. He pointed to two of his disciples and he said, I want you to go to that village over there and I want you to get me a donkey and her colt and I want you to bring them to me. Everyone else is walking because it was the custom. You walk to Passover. That was the customary thing to do. But Jesus requests an unbroken colt so that he can ride into the city of Jerusalem. He explains where they will find the donkeys, what to do when they find them and and what to say if anybody questions them. And these two disciples immediately obey Jesus. Off they go to find the two donkeys. And then Matthew explains the significance of what is happening here. And he tells us that this is messianic. He tells us that what is happening is the fulfillment of a prophecy that was written by a guy by the name of Zechariah almost 500 years earlier. And here's what Zechariah wrote. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, 
Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And the religious leaders of the day thought that, taught that this verse was clearly a reference, a prophetic reference to the coming Messiah. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem very publicly. No one is going to miss him. He'll be the only one in that huge crowd of people riding on a donkey. And when we look at that verse in Zechariah, it clearly states, your king will be coming to Jerusalem. Your king is victorious, but he will be coming in humility, and he will be riding on a donkey. Now, in the Roman world, when a victorious Caesar came back to a city after fighting battles, he would come riding a horse, an animal of war. He would come in might and in power. But when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he came riding a donkey, a humble animal, not an animal of war, but an animal of peace. He is victorious, but he is humble. And he's about to enter Jerusalem in humility and in meekness. Now, I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. When Jesus sat on that colt, he was clearly declaring, I am king, I am Messiah. And this is an act of incredible courage because only a couple of days before, the religious leaders had very literally put out an APB on Jesus. They had declared that anyone who saw Jesus was to report it to them immediately so they could go out and arrest him. So what does Jesus do? Not only does he make sure that thousands of people can see what he is doing, that he is visible to all these people, but he wants to make sure that they see that he is their king and their Messiah. It's almost as if he's daring the Pharisees and the priests to come and arrest him. And you have to remember that up until this day, Jesus had been very cautious about declaring that he was the Messiah. He had he kind of kept it under wraps. If somebody started talking a little loud, he would, he would tell them to just tone it down a bit. But today, everything is different. Today, he is going to enter Jerusalem publicly declaring that he is king, that he is Messiah. You know, the Jews knew their scriptures. They studied them from, from, from youth. They studied their scriptures. They knew them well. And I think many of them understood what was happening here. They recognized that what was happening in front of them was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And their words in scene four confirm this when they call Jesus their king. Scene two ends with the two disciples finding the donkeys just as Jesus told them they would and bringing them to Jesus. And when they bring them to Jesus, they put their outer garments over them, kind of like a saddle, and Jesus gets on and starts to ride. And then in scene three, we go back from the countryside back into the city of Jerusalem again. And this scene explains why such a large group of people actually left Jerusalem and went out to join that crowd that was out in the countryside, the crowd that was gathering around Jesus. See, people were hearing that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. It had only happened a few days before this. And this is big news. Everybody's talking about it. Can you imagine if something like that happened today on the coast? Can you imagine if someone were clearly, before many witnesses, brought back to life after they had been dead and buried for four days? That would be big news. It would be all over social media. Everybody would be talking about it. And that's what's going on right now in the city of Jerusalem. People are talking about Lazarus. And there are many people in the city who had actually been there at Lazarus' funeral 
And they had seen Jesus call him back up out of the tomb and bring him back to life. And it wasn't only a few who were saying this. There were many who had seen this miracle and they weren't keeping silent. They were talking about Jesus and about what he had done. And those who hadn't seen the miracle were asking all kinds of questions. Did you really see it? What really happened? Are you sure that Lazarus was really dead? And when the eyewitnesses convinced them that Lazarus had really been dead and that Jesus had brought him back to life, they leave Jerusalem to go out to see the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. And interestingly, as they go out to meet Jesus, they cut palm branches off the trees and they're waving them as they're going out to meet Jesus. And the custom of waving palm branches goes back about 150 years to the time of the Maccabees, when a fellow by the name of Simon liberated Judah from the Syrians. And when he entered Jerusalem after his victory as a conquering hero, the people welcomed him by doing two things. One, singing praises to God, and two, waving palm branches. And the waving of palm branches became an act of homage to the welcoming of a coming king, of a victor, of a deliverer. So the people, by waving palm branches, are seeing Jesus as their king, as their savior, as their deliverer. Remember, they're looking for a savior. They're looking for a Messiah who will free them from the bondage of Rome. They wanted to be set free. They wanted Rome driven out of Israel. Now, think about Jesus. Who could be a better military leader than Jesus? When you're on a military campaign, remember you need to bring supplies, right? You got a large army, you need to feed them. But not with Jesus. He can take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 12,000 people, 5,000 men and all their families. You don't need to carry all the supplies with you because Jesus can just make food. Wouldn't that make it much easier for an army? And then with Jesus, you don't need to bring doctors along because anybody gets sick or hurt, he just heals them. And if people die, he just brings them back to life. Wouldn't Jesus be a great leader of an army? I mean, what army could face a leader like that? No general, no army in the world could stand up to Jesus. The people wanted him to be their leader. Okay, on to scene four, back to the countryside again. This crowd around Jesus is getting larger and larger. Now that large group of people out in the countryside is being joined by that large group of people that is moving out from Jerusalem to see what's going on. Thousands, probably tens of thousands of people out in the countryside now around Jesus as they're working their way towards Jerusalem. In fact, the word that Matthew uses for crowd literally means very large crowd. And some of them are pointing to Bartimaeus. Hey, there's the guy that was blind, and Jesus gave him his sight, and he can see again. And others are nudging people and pointing over there. Hey, there's Lazarus and his two sisters. Remember him? He's the guy that was in the tomb for four days, and Jesus brought back to life because they're there with Jesus. And as they're walking towards Jerusalem, people are wondering, is today going to be the day that we are set free from Rome? Is today going to be the day that the Romans are driven out of Israel? And they can't wait to see what's going to happen. And as Jesus is moving his way towards the city, they're giving him the red carpet treatment. They're putting their garments on the road in front of him. They're taking the palm branches and laying them on the road in front of him, just like we would do today with a red carpet. And as they get nearer to Jerusalem, the people begin to sing and to shout. I remember once, just a bit of a side story here, I remember once being in a Saskatchewan Rough Rider football game. And there were over 50,000 people at that game. 
And at halftime, Calgary was way ahead, and we were all so discouraged and so disappointed. And in the second half, the Riders made this amazing comeback and won the game. And the crowd went wild with enthusiasm. In fact, we were sitting on some metal bleachers, and the bleachers were shaking back and forth so much that, that my boys and I were actually afraid. We were sitting way up in the top, and the bleachers were just swaying back and forth from the excitement. But you know, that was nothing compared to what was happening outside of Jerusalem on this day. Nothing at all. The people were delirious with intense excitement. It was like a victory parade, like welcoming home a conquering hero. Can you imagine that crowd? Tens of thousands of people, in a good way, going crazy over Jesus. And they're singing and they're shouting. And what's the theme? God. They're singing about and they're singing to God. They're praising God for all the amazing things that they have seen. It's interesting. They praise God for the miracles that Jesus has done. They see Jesus' miracles as a demonstration of God's power. And there's a second thing that's really interesting here. Jesus doesn't stop them. Like I said before, Jesus would often just do a little bit of this when people started talking about him being the Messiah. But not today. Today, he fully accepts the people treating him as Messiah, as king. And then following in the text, we have the words of two different groups of people. First, we have the words of the crowd, and then we have the words of the Pharisees. Look at the words of the crowd, and you've got them on the text, and they're going to be on the screen. And I want you to read them with me. Read, just shout them out as if you were in the crowd out there. Hosanna, blessing, join, join me. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. Peace on earth and glory in highest heaven. Hail to the king of Israel. That's the kind of things that the crowd was shouting. And many of those words come from Psalm 118, which Blake read to us earlier. And I'll just read two verses from Psalm 118. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The people clearly see Jesus as their Messiah, as their King. And they shout Hosanna. And if you look at Psalm 118, remember where it says, please save us? Literally, that's Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means. Save us or save us now. And the people are crying out to Jesus to save them. They understand Jesus to be their Savior. And by waving the palm branches and shouting Hosanna to the son of David, people were crying out for salvation from their Davidic victorious king because they're calling Jesus the descendant of David, the Davidic king. And remember God's promise in the Old Testament that there will always be a, king of, or a descendant of David on the throne. And the people are seeing that prophecy being fulfilled in front of them. They praise and glorify Jesus as one who brings peace. A king who doesn't bring war, but who brings peace. And again, they clearly call him their king. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking at this time? They've been with Jesus for three years. They've seen him mocked, challenged, abused, ridiculed, criticized, humiliated. They've seen people try and kill him by pushing him off a cliff. They've Multiple times they've seen people pick up stones once, just a few days earlier, to throw at him, to try and kill him. And now they watch this large crowd of people called Jesus Messiah and King. 
Now, they're still really worried about what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. They're very concerned. They're not sure what's going to happen. But today, I can just imagine their chests are out a little bit, and they got big smiles on their faces as they walk around Jesus as his honor guard. What an incredible day for those group of men. But then we have the words of the Pharisees. And I, I just ask myself, why does there always have to be a Pharisee in the crowd? They get close to Jesus, and they try and squelch the excitement. They tell Jesus to shut things down. They don't like what they're seeing. They don't like hearing all this acclamation about Jesus being the Messiah. And you know, up until now, the Pharisees have kind of had their own way. They've, they've kept Jesus kind of cornered. They've kept him out of the way. He hasn't really come out publicly and declared in a, in a very public way that he's the Messiah. But today, everything changes. Today, Jesus steps into the spotlight in a full, complete way. And they feel like they've lost. They feel like what Jesus is doing is, is totally and completely inappropriate. They, they believe that Jesus is not the Messiah. They recognize him as a teacher, but not as the Messiah. And isn't this tragic? They've been around Jesus for three years. Often, the Pharisees pop up in the story. They've seen Jesus' miracles. They've heard his teaching. Some of them were even there when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. And yet after all they've seen and heard, they choose to reject Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah. And you remember Jesus' reply? If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst out into cheers. And Jesus is saying three things here. First of all, he's saying, I am the Messiah. By not allowing the Pharisees to control him and to have him tell the people to be quiet, he's simply saying, I am the Messiah. And the second thing Jesus is saying is, I alone am worthy of praise. If people will not praise me, then nature itself will praise me. And the third thing Jesus is saying is, I am God. And you know, there's a lot of examples in the Old Testament of creation praising God. And Jesus is taking that and saying, creation praises me, therefore I am God. Jesus is applying those Old Testament verses to himself. Jesus is saying, it is inevitable that I be praised. I am Messiah. I am God. And then in scene five, we go back to Jerusalem. Jesus is now entering the city. And those who didn't go along to join the crowd see the uproar. And they wonder, what is going on? And when they ask, the reply they hear is, it's Jesus. Hundreds of thousands of people talking about Jesus. Excited about Jesus declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is their king. And then almost just as suddenly as things got going, things start to tone down. Jesus goes to the temple, check things out, and then because it's late in the day, he goes back to Bethany, where he will spend the night again, likely with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Now tomorrow, he's going to come back to the temple with whip in hand, and he's going to drive out those money changers who are making a mockery out of Passover. But today, there's still one more thing that's going to happen. Right at the end of the day, after everything is quieted down, the Pharisees get together. They feel lost. They feel defeated. They're afraid that Jesus is going to conquer their world and win over all of their followers. No one's complying with their APB. No one's helping them out in any way. Everything has gone against them. And in the next few days, they conspire and they come up with a plan. And with the help of Judas, 
they have Jesus arrested and tried. And on Friday, they manipulate a crowd of people. And I believe it's a different crowd of people than the ones who called out Hosanna. But they manipulate a different crowd of people to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. So in one week, Jesus has gone from Hosanna to crucify him. What a day. What an incredible day in the life of Jesus that happened that day in Jerusalem. And I want to end this morning by just asking you a simple question. What is your response to Jesus? What is your response to Jesus? And in the story, we see four different answers to that question. And it's interesting that all four different groups have the same evidence before them. They all know about Jesus' miracles. Many of them have seen his miracles. They all know about Jesus' teaching. Many of them have sat at Jesus' feet and have heard him teach. They all know what happened with Lazarus. Many of them were there and they saw it. And they all know that today, Jesus declared himself to be Savior, to be Messiah. And yet they didn't all respond the same way. Some responded with outright disbelief. The Pharisees had heard Jesus' teaching. They'd seen his miracles. They'd even been there when he had called Lazarus from the tomb. And yet they deliberately chose to not believe in Jesus. And there were some who responded with total indifference. They just didn't care. They stayed in Jerusalem. Even with all that was happening out there in the countryside and all the people who were talking about it, they didn't care. They heard that Jesus was coming, the Jesus who'd raised Lazarus from the dead, but they just stayed home in Jerusalem. They had no interest in this man, in his claims, or even what others were saying about him. But then there were some who responded with belief. They saw Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah, and they chose to call out, Hosanna, save us! And they chose to believe in Jesus. And then there was a fourth group who took it even one step further. They took belief to obedience. And they listened to Jesus, and they obeyed him. Remember the 12 when Jesus said, let's go to Jerusalem? They were terrified. They thought death awaited them in Jerusalem. And yet they obeyed Jesus, even to the point of possible death, and went with him. And when he told two of his disciples, go into that town over there, and you're going to find two donkeys and bring them to me, they didn't question him. They just immediately did what Jesus said. They obeyed him. The beginning of Holy Week. The beginning of the week that totally and completely celebrates Jesus. From his triumphal entry to his time with the disciples to the Last Supper to the betrayal of Judas to his trial to his death and to his resurrection. All happens in this one week. And again, I ask you, what is your response to Jesus as we move into this week and celebrate the last week of Jesus' life? And I would encourage you, believe in Jesus and be obedient to the words of Jesus, whatever he has to say to you. Let's pray together. Father, what an exciting day. It would have been so neat to have been there and to watch what had happened. But God, we can live it in our hearts. But even more, Father, we remember Jesus. And we remember all that he has done for us. He submitted himself 
to die for us. And then he came back to life. And because he came back to life, we too can have life in you. So thank you for Jesus and for what he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.